you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. Well, if uh, I, we have not met, uh, my name is Philip. I am one of the elders here, uh, and uh, it is my pleasure to be uh, in front of you guys this morning sharing a word with all of you. Uh, I'm grateful uh, for this opportunity. Uh, so yeah, just super excited. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I, we moved in uh, to the home that we're living in now, um, it's it's uh, down on off Garden Road, up in Poway. We live right next to this very large field, uh, which is beautiful. Like our side yard is literally this big, beautiful f- field, uh, and there's so many nice perks about it. But there's also a number of things that come with it. There's a number of like downsides about living next to a large field as well. Um, shortly after moving in, we had started noticing scorpions all inside of our house. Yeah. Yeah, scorpions, right? We saw them in our uh, bathroom. We saw them in our kitchen. We just were seeing them scattered all over the place. And to kind of give you a picture about how I feel about scorpions, um, when I die, there are going to be some questions I have for God, right? I have three, four questions that make, that make the list. And one of the questions is, why did you make scorpions so horrifying, Right? I mean, you look at these pictures of scorpions, right? I mean, you might even ask, God, why did you make scorpions at all? But to some extent, you just think, like, oh, this is just, maybe it's just me. But when I look at this, this is terrifying to me, right? Like, I think scorpions are terrifying, right? They're horrifying-looking creatures, right? Um, so this is like a nightmare to me, to be inside the house. Uh, and this is like Feet away from my children are sleeping is where we are finding these, these scorpions. And at the time, we had a four-year-old, we had a two-year-old. My wife was like eight months pregnant, about ready to have a, a new baby. And I'm looking at these scorpions thinking like, these things are in our house everywhere. And there was this one night, uh, we were sitting on the couch, we were watching uh, TV. Uh, my two girls were like nestled up in my arms and asleep. And my wife was sitting there watching. Uh, and we have a good friend of ours rents out a room and uh, he opened up the door, and it was, you know, said late night, and uh, he stepped into a dark hallway, and uh, we hear him step out, and all we hear is, ah, I'm hit, <laughs> and we look at my wife, and I look at each other, it's like, what on earth, and so she goes up there, and she turns on the light, and she sees him like this, and then looks down on the floor, and there's a scorpion scattering away. And then he reacts super quick. He gets his hands messy. He has no problem with that. He takes off his hat, which ironically was like a Forrest Gump hat. It's like Bubba Gump Shrimp Shrimp Factory. He takes it off. He gets on the floor on his hands and knees, and he starts banging on the scorpion, right? Kills the scorpion. Later on, we grab the scorpion. Uh, We have like a a napkin, right? We're holding the scorpion in our our hands, and I'm looking at the scorpion, and I'm looking at my... my, uh, my family, my young girls, I'm looking at my pregnant wife, and I'm looking at my friend who just got stung by the scorpion, and it's like the nightmare starts to build, right? Like this idea of like, man, these scorpions could get up into my kids' beds and just sting them in the middle of the night, right? The paranoia starts building in my head. So I make this late night run to Walmart. 
Uh, I look up at all these ways about how to stop scorpions or how to kill scorpions or whatever, and I clear the shelves at Walmart trying to get every kind of trap, every kind of parameter poison I can get. I get these little black lights. I don't know if you guys know, but uh, scorpions illuminate under, uh, under a black light. Right, like to me, I don't know if something is demonic. Like that is a sign that if you put a black light on it and it starts glowing, something is wrong with that animal. Right, that critter. I, I learned that lavender, for whatever reason, I mean, lavenders, flowers, scorpions don't like the smell of lavender. Right, and so we get all these sprays and scents of lavender, and we go through our house. Like that night. I turn off all the lights off, and I'm now looking around the house with this black light and this lavender spray, searching for scorpions and spraying everywhere like a mad person, right? I'm looking under furniture. I'm looking through the bed. I'm looking through everything I can. I cannot stop thinking about scorpions that night, right? It was like, it was like a paranoia going on in my head. And then I'm in bed trying to finally sleep after hours of going through all this stuff, uh, and then I'm, I'm reading online. Of course, this is what you shouldn't do is be reading about things you're scared about when you're trying to go to bed. And I remember reading this phrase, and it's this, this line. It said, scorpions love to uh, hide in blankets on beds. <laughs> and I'm looking down at my feet, and I'm seeing this nice, cozy blanket on my feet, and I cannot stop about thinking about how scorpions are, like, crawling all over me. I get up, I search the blanket, I rip the, the blankets off my kids' beds, I search those, I spray it with some lavender. Right? I'm going crazy. And then I remember at some point in time, I finally am down, and I'm like, i got to go to sleep. And the, and the verse, Philippians 4, 6, pops in my head. Be anxious for nothing. And I'm like, how? How am I supposed to be anxious for nothing, right? I think about God's command to be still or don't be afraid. Like, this is the Lord's fight. And I'm thinking, what on earth? How am I supposed, in the midst of this, right, in my own little nightmare, when I'm looking at a dead script in my hand, I'm thinking to myself, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to not be anxious? Like, how is that even something I do? Uh, it, whether it's a, a scorpion invasion or whatever your nightmare is, or it's a financial hardship, a medical hardship, if it's loss or maybe a fear of loss of something, parenting challenges, personal or national or global crises, Job uncertainty, I mean, whatever it is, we have those moments in our life where the anxiety builds. We have those plenty of those times in our lives where we all of a sudden, we don't feel like we have any control of what's happening. And we might be trying to grasp and trying to find, how do I control this, right? Spraying lavender all over your house, right? To try to grasp some kind of control of something you cannot control. And we go beyond what's wise. We start trying to, to reach for something, trying to control something that we, we don't just have control of. And, and amazingly, you know, the Bible and all that it says, it says so much that tells us that faith has a huge place in our lives in those times. In those times when our, our metaphorical storms hit us hardest. And today I want to ask this question. I want to ask this question, what does it look like to be faithful in a crisis? What does it look like to be faithful uh, in, in, the, in the moment of, of our panic or when our anxiety is building, in the moment of things are going bad? Before I say another word, would you guys just join me in a word of, of prayer so that God might uh, invade this space and, and that he might be um, 
the one who takes all glory this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you today. We thank you for this space, Lord. We thank you for this, this time that you allow each one of us to be here and that we might be able to, to honor you, Lord. We might be able to worship you, Lord, with our heads, with our hearts, with our hands. And God, I just pray that you would invade this space, that you would invade each one of our hearts, Lord, that you would mold us, you'd shape us, Lord, that we might be receptive to exactly the word you have for us. God, do not let me say a word that is not from you. God, that you would, that you would not let me utter anything, God, that is not something that honors you or pleases you. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So we are uh, on the week two of the sermon series that we just started uh, called Remarkable. Remarkable, where we are looking at the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we're looking, I mean, kind of thematically, too, just looking at some of the themes of these miracles in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and last week, JP uh, talked about the, the miracle that, that Jesus had, the power that he had, the authority he had over demons. And, and he asked a, a very convicting question. He asked, who has authority in your life? Who has ultimate authority in your life? Uh, and I kind of want to continue that thought and that question as we, as, we, as we read our passage this morning, which we're going to be in Mark 4. But I want to I ask that question a little bit more and just ask, do you really trust Jesus? Do you really trust Jesus has authority over the things you cannot control? Do you trust him with the things that you cannot control? So I want to think about that question as we, as we dive into our passage today. It's going to be in Mark chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to be reading, we're going to be reading Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you notice, I bounce around from translations a lot. I have my reasons for that, but this morning we're going to be in the ESV. Um, but let's jump in it together, starting up on verse 35. It says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as, he was in, uh, uh, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And then a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And then the disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the, to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and they asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So Jesus is on this boat with his disciples. They're crossing, which is likely, we guess, is the Sea of Galilee. It's technically, you know, a big lake. It's about 13 miles across. So it's not like it's massive, but it's big. And, and given some of the unique geological features about this lake, uh, it was prone to picking up these, like, sudden storms, right? And that it was something. This lake is and was, you know, had, had these, these storms that would pick up. 
And to give you a little picture, in verse 37, it says that the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling, right? Water is coming into the boat. It's like the first step of the boat sinking. And meanwhile, Jesus is down there sleeping. All of his disciples, we could just guess, like they're doing what probably you do when your boat is in a storm, right? They're probably trying to hold things down or get water out of the boat. They're doing all these different things. And then they go and they wake him up. And then they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are going to die? And so then Jesus gets up and he goes out to the water and he says, be still. Quiet, peace, be still. And then it says that the waves and the storm calms. He says, be still. Right? And the Greek word there is phimo, which is like to be silent. Right? And it comes from the same root of something that is like you would muzzle an animal. Right? When you wanted to get an animal to be quiet, right? you could muzzle, you could put this, this tool on there, right? and that would make them, make them hush. In the same way that Jesus is like muzzling the storm. Shh, be quiet. Uh, some of my favorite passages in Scripture is actually where God says, be still. If you ever just did a search in the Bible, you'll see that this is actually a very common uh, theme in the Bible, that God says, be still. Uh, this is by far not the only place that it happens. Um, in Psalm 46, it's very famous where it says it. Um, but a few verses before, I want to read a few verses before God says, be still. But in Psalm 46, 1 through 3, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the earth, or though the mountain trembles at its swelling. And then in verse 10, God says, be still and know that I am God. The heart of what this psalm is saying here is that when your world is falling apart, and it's all very figurative language, it's all very, you know, this metaphorical language here, right? When your world is falling apart, when the very ground that you are standing on, something that you really want to be stable, just gives way underneath you, right? When the waves of the sea are so violent that even the, the, the hills, the mountains are trembling, that the waves are going to come up and swallow them. Right? When the storm is that bad in your life, be still. Remember. Know who God is. A very similar passage, uh, a very, sorry, not similar passage, but similar uh, a theme here is when you look into the story of Exodus. Right? And so the Psalms is a, is, a, is a song or a poem, right? But it, the story of Exodus is actually a story. And to give a quick synopsis of where this is, is taking place, where God it gives the command to be still. It's right after God frees all of Israel from, from slavery, and Israel's marching away, and they get to the Red Sea, and where they're camping at the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, and him and all of, he gets on some chariots, and he comes, and he starts chasing the, the, the Israelites down. And then the Israel is now, uh, where they are camped out, they're now looking out, and they're now seeing Pharaoh's men coming, and they start freaking out. Because now they're kind of cornered up against the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh are coming with chariots. Right? And, and so they start yelling at Moses. They said, you should have left us in Egypt. And they say, uh, we would have rather been slaves in Egypt than to die here. Which, I, to me, I can't help to think. That's like literally the opposite of William Wallace and Braveheart. 
Right? You guys remember where he says, like, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom. They're like the polar opposite. Take our freedom, please. Just don't take our lives. Right? This is the level of cowardice is where they're at. And then in Exodus 14, 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. God is saying this through Moses. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And then you remember the very next thing God does? Tells Moses, he says, go and put your hands up to the waves of the Red Sea. And he goes and he does. And then all of a sudden, the, the waves, you know, the water of the Red Sea starts parting. And it becomes these two massive walls. And then he says, walk through it. And get out. And then they do when they get through. And I just as they're getting on the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's men start pursuing them. And then he brings the waves in and, and he wins the battle. Uh, now, when you look at the, the Hebrew, because these are two stories, these are two times in the Old Testament where, it, this, where you see this word, uh, be still, which is in Hebrew, right? Because all the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, all the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, the, the Hebrew word for be still has this idea of like letting go, like you're holding on to a rope and it's like letting go of that. Well, in the Greek, it's a different, it's a different meaning, right? It's a different meaning. It's not like the, it's like a perfect analogy here, but, but it, it, the Greek there is that be quiet, Right, to muzzle, to be silent. But nevertheless, there is this, there is this, there's an interesting parallel in all these stories. When the storm rages, when things feel out of control, when you're most afraid, there is a command, be still. And to know, to remember who God is. Now when you, when you go back to the passage here in Mark, right, Jesus says, be still. And then the miracle happens. We see the authority of Jesus, the storms calm. Um, and I have to ask a very childish question. Like, what is the point of this miracle at all? It's a very, I mean, it's a very childish question. But like, why calm a storm like this? Like, what is the point of this, this miracle at all, right? Like, could you not imagine that in some ways it might even be more fitting where uh, maybe the, the disciples are freaking out and they go wake up Jesus and Jesus comes out and looks at the storm and just says, Hey guys, it's going to be okay. Chill out. And goes back to bed or whatever, and the storm rages on, but a couple of hours they make it to the other side. Right? I mean, in some ways, it's like, what? Like, was it necessary for Jesus to actually calm the storm, or were they just going to make it anyways? Or you might even think, like, why have a storm at all? Why have a storm at all? Don't you think, you know, God is in control of all this? You know, could he have not have had the wind that strong that night? I mean, could you imagine that Jesus just as easily could have not had a storm at all and not made a mess out of it, right? God wanted a miracle to happen, right? And, and part of it to understand is there, it's not just about efficiency. God isn't, it's like, this isn't the most efficient way to take care of the problem. This isn't about efficiency. Miracles are not about efficiency. Miracles often, I would say almost always, have a deeper purpose behind it. There's a reason that God does a miracle, in the Old Testament, you'll often see these God do these great and grand, wonderful, big things, these grand miracles. And what's very interesting is a lot of times beforehand, he's telling someone or some group of people, he's saying, hey, I'm going to do this big thing. You're going to see some big stuff. Just, just you wait, you watch, right? It's like in the story of Exodus particularly, right? There's that interaction with, with God and Moses when he's in the burning bush. And, and in that time, he says, you're going to see all kinds of cool stuff. There's going to be all kinds of stuff that's going to happen. It's going to be big. 
And then you know what he tells Moses? He says, I'm going to do all this cool stuff, and then they will know that I am God. And then Moses is like, I can't talk, or whatever he says. He's trying to talk himself out of it. And then God says, you're going to see big things, and then you will know that I am God. He keeps saying, and you will know that I am God. And if you read, when you read the Old Testament, you see this theme. It comes up many times. God says, I'm going to do something. And afterwards, you're going to know. You're going to know exactly who I am. Or they're going to know exactly who I am. My, my point? I think God is giving us a little hint. That one reason, perhaps maybe one of the, the, the most important reasons about why God performs these great miracles is he wants us to know who exactly he is, what exactly he is capable, and how important you are to him. He wants us to know that very, very clearly. Um, I'd argue that it's perhaps one of the main reasons why God performs miracles is he is trying to build faith in people. Uh, if you look at, you know, in John, right, this is one way that the Gospel of John is a little different than some of the other Gospels, is that when it uses the word, instead of using the word miracles, he uses the word signs. He says signs, right? And he says that Jesus performed a sign, right? Um, and there are signs because, you know, what is a sign? A sign is something that points us to something, a sign is something that says what something is. This is a lion. This is a monkey. This is a door. Whatever, right? There's these signs that tell you what something is. And, 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 and what Jesus is performing, John says these are signs. They point us to something. They tell us about something. They tell us who Jesus is, where he comes from, and what his authority is, and what he is capable of doing. It, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's a message. There's a point to it. Now, when you think about miracles in this light, when you think about that, there is a point to these miracles. They're not just efficiencies, right? There are a point to these miracles. It makes Jesus' questions to the disciples, it kind of makes some, sheds some more light to it. So if you look back at the passage, Jesus stops the storm, and then he turns to the disciples, and he says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And on one hand, man, I have a lot of sympathy for the disciples, I'm like, yes, the boat was literally sinking, Jesus, <laughs> and you're napping, <laughs> right? There is some point of me that says, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of reasonable. But on the other hand, you, you must consider this. This isn't the first miracle they've ever seen. This isn't the first time they've seen Jesus do something really cool. They've seen him do all kinds of incredible things. They've seen all kinds of supernatural authority and miraculous healings. He had all this divine wisdom, right? I mean, there's, this is not the first miracle they have seen of Jesus. And when you're, when you're sitting on a boat with Jesus and you've seen what he is capable of already, even if it's just a few things, should you really be afraid of a storm? When you've seen what Jesus is capable of, when you know what he's capable of, should you really be afraid of being in a storm when he's, got, he's just right there sleeping? Shouldn't you be thinking, well, maybe I should be sleeping? Jesus presses them a little bit more. He says, so why are you afraid? And then he asks, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Um, think through this. You know, why did Jesus ask him that? 
Why, what is, he brings faith into this, right? Um, and and you, one thing to be very clear, he is not asking them, do you have no faith because he woke them up or he, uh, because they woke him up. Right? That's, not, that's not why Jesus is doing that. In fact, that's probably a, a demonstration of faith, right? That they came and they woke him up and said, Jesus, we need your help. We're sinking. Please help us. That's, that's a demonstration of faith, right? What was the lack of faith is the fact that they had a lack of confidence in him. It's because they said, do you not care that we are going to drown? Can you relate to that question? God, the storm's all around me. Do you not care about me? Do you not know what I'm feeling and thinking and what I'm going through? Do you not care about me, God? And Jesus' specific question gets a little more direct. I mean, really what he's getting at is this. Where is your faith in the storm? You can talk boldly about how you love me when things are gone. You can talk boldly about what you believe I am capable when things are going well. But what happens when the winds get a little shaky? Where does your faith go? So this takes me back to my question. What does it look like to be faithful in a storm? I think our answer lies in what did they not do? What did the disciples not do? This is where they went wrong. In this story, this is where they went wrong. They forgot. They forgot who Jesus was. Uh, in the midst of the storm, they forgot who he was, what he was capable of. They forgot about his affection for them. They came face to face with something terrifying, something they can't control. They're looking at the eye of the storm and they're thinking, man, that's the scary thing. And they neglect, they forget everything they think about Jesus. And so rather than just waking him up and asking Will you come and help us? They say, uh, they accuse him of being indifferent to their well-being. They say, don't you care that we are going to drown? Can't you relate to that mistake? Right? That's, where, that's where faith falls apart right, in a storm, is once you start thinking that Jesus doesn't care, that God is incapable. Or maybe you're just not even thinking about it at all. All you're doing is just staring about how big those waves are. And you're not even thinking about who Jesus is. Um, do you forget who God is in your crisis? Do you ever forget what God is capable of in your crisis? Do you ever forget about God's concern for you in your crisis? Uh, in, in the New Testament, uh, one of the you know, most beautiful, and I'd call it maybe like a subplot, right? One of the, it's not like the main plot, main story, uh, part of the story, but it's just like this other story that you can see unfold is the journey of the disciples' faith and how they grow over the years, right? So if you look at this exact point in the story, um, their faith is very fragile, right? A little bit of rocky waves, and they're like, oh, you don't care about us, right? And that's where they're at at this point in time, but it continues to grow, and the more Jesus presses them and he challenges them and he takes them deeper and deeper and deeper, it becomes, I mean, their faith becomes incredible. And it really, it climaxes. It's getting this full strength. Their, their faith hits the full strength after the resurrection. Because that's when their real mission began. Jesus is trying to build their faith and he, I mean, he, he accomplishes it perfectly. Because at the point of his resurrection and the point of his ascension, that's when the disciples were really ready. If you look at chapter 4 in Acts, remember, I don't have it on the screen, but if you look at chapter 4 in Acts, there's this very important, important step in the disciples' faith that takes place there. 
Um, a couple of these disciples had just performed a miracle, a miracle the same way that Jesus did. In the name of Jesus, they did something. And then they're preaching about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. And then they're, they're brought to the council of the Sanhedrin, which is this uh, religious elite group, the same group of people who put Jesus on trial and had him crucified or wanted to have him crucified. And now a couple of these disciples, the same disciples that were on that boat saying, you don't care about us when some waves hit. Those, some of those disciples are now standing before, and before this exact same council that put Jesus on trial. And, and, and the Sanhedrin asks, uh, where do you get the right to do these miracles? Where does that power come from? Where do you get the right to preach about these things? Where do you get the right to do that? And this is, in, uh, I said, it's not on the screen, but in Acts 4, verses 8 through 13, this is, this is what they were saying. Uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the peoples, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and this is where they start pointing at them, right? Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. That is the slap to the face to them. You have no power. Jesus is the only place for salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Um, this is an immense journey of faith. When you think about it, these, these two were on that boat with Jesus freaking out over some water in the boat. And now here they are, right, talking to the same council that had murdered Jesus in a brutal way. And they're telling them, this council, you're wrong. You were wrong about Jesus. You're wrong about religion. And if I were to actually listen to the things that you're telling me, I would be disobeying God. That's a bold move. That's a bold move, right? And then what's amazing is that they would continue this ministry. They would continue this work for the next 30 years. The disciples would continue. They would work. They would strive. They would suffer. They would sacrifice. And they will toil to spread Jesus' word throughout the world. And eventually, these men die brutal deaths. They die brutal deaths. Peter was said to have been crucified upside down. And they were crucifying him at the moment. And he said, please don't kill me the same way you killed my Lord. I don't deserve that kind of honor. Turn me upside down. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Philip was tortured to death. James was stoned to death, where they pummel you with rocks until you die. And there are records of other disciples being boiled alive, fed to lions, and beheaded. Think about the journey of faith. Imagine the kind of faith you must have had to be in that moment and that you spend 30 years fighting for the gospel to be spread. And, and that's how it ends. That's the glory you get at the end of your life. And this is their perspective. 
This is what they learned over the course of 30 years. And a few more years with Jesus, they learned that when you know who God is, when you know who Jesus is, it doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter what you lose. It won't matter what you pay. There isn't a storm in the world. There isn't a crisis in the world that is ever going to be a real threat to you. When you know who Jesus is, when you get that, there won't be a threat in the world that will really matter in the end. And this probably, and this is what's amazing about when I think about the journey of the disciples' faith, is that they probably had absolutely no idea that their death had big purpose for God's church. It had a big purpose, right? They, they didn't die in vain. Their brutal deaths were not in vain. Millions, if not billions of people would be changed by it. Why? And this kind of gets back to exactly what JP talked about in his Easter sermon. Uh, but one of the things is that their death was a, is, is and still is a critical part of evidence, one critical part of evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Because um, one thing you got to understand, that these were, their deaths were threats carried out. Because the rise of Christianity had become one of the, the greatest threats to the Roman Empire at the time. And so there, these disciples and thousands of other Christians who all claim they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, there's this threat of death. Tell us that you are lying about Jesus or we're going to do some terrible things to you. Tell us that Jesus is nothing but a normal man. Tell me that he didn't rise from the dead or I'm going to throw you in a pot of boiling oil or I'm going to feed your face to some lions, right? Tell me you're lying. And they don't. And if they did, Roman would have broadcasted that everywhere. See, Peter's admitting it. He's lying. Jesus is a fake, but he doesn't. Never happens. Blaise Pascal, a mathematician, philosopher, many years ago, um, he, he said this. He said, if I am going to believe a witness, I'm going to believe the one who's willing to get their throat cut. Right? I mean, it's, just, it's a statement of like, if these people are willing to die for this lie, that doesn't make sense. Right? Uh, N.T. Wright, a uh, scholar, New Testament scholar and historian, says there's no other good explanation for the resurrection uh, if, if, there is, if the resurrection didn't happen. Because we can't look at the, how these disciples and thousands of people behaved after, after de- Jesus' death and resurrection. Like, that doesn't make sense. How they behaved wouldn't make sense if the resurrection didn't really happen. If they didn't sincerely believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, why would you die for a lie like that? And here's my point in all this. That in the end, their demonstration of faith persuades countless of people that ultimately their pain wasn't in vain. That God would take this crisis that they experienced and their death and have tremendous power, and yet they have no idea. To them, it was a simple decision. Do I really trust Jesus? In the midst of the storm, when it, I have no control of my life and all I have to do is be honest and true, honest and true to Jesus, do I really trust Jesus? Do I really believe this? If so, it's worth dying for. It's worth giving up everything for. It's worth being strong to and committed to. The disciples had no idea how God would repurpose that painful death. They had no idea how he would repurpose that storm in their life. They didn't know God's plan. They didn't know the future. Instead, Later on in their crisis, when they're facing a new fierce storm, that Roman Empire, the Sanhedrin, everyone else who's a threat to them, 
they trusted that God was in control. What they came to realize and what they came to be confident years, 30 years later, is that Jesus, who controlled the storm 30 years before, is still in control of the storm that I face today. Jesus has control of the things that we do not have control of, and I can trust him with that. And if you think about it, you go back to this passage in Mark, when they're sitting in the boat, do you think at that point in their faith, were they ready to die for Jesus? Probably not, right? Jesus had a lot of work to do. He had a lot of faith building to do. He had to show them, look at how I control things that no one else has control of. Look at how I have purpose and power in things where no one else can seem to find any purpose or power. Regardless of the storm you face, he's at work. What does the miracle of Jesus, uh, what, is, what does this miracle of Jesus calming the storm, what does it teach us? It shows us that Jesus has authority over things that we cannot control. Sure, we can tinker with nature and we can manipulate it here and there, but we do not have control of it. The storm was a crisis they couldn't control. And our lives are filled with crises we cannot control. But Jesus can. The miracle taught us, right, and the miracle taught the disciples, you can trust Jesus with the things you cannot control. That is what this story shows us. Recently, my wife and I were, were, were talking about how our faith journey has changed over the years and how, how God has worked in our lives, and we were just thinking about all the storms that kind of we've been hit at different seasons in our life. And there have been some seasons where we faced a lot of pressures and a lot of stresses. I remember seasons when we were in the midst of ministry and all kinds of stuff was going on and we felt very powerless. And I remember thinking, man, we had a mortgage and I'm like, I don't know, every single month, I had no idea how we were going to pay for a mortgage. I had no idea how this was going to happen or we were going to pay for that or whatever it was. And there has been some seasons where we were pulled and stressed and we felt pressure and it was tight and it was, and it was hard, 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 hard. And I look back and I think, man, there were some crazy things God did in that season. There were some big things where I'm like, wow, that was obviously God doing something there in a weird way. And there's some very small things, some subtle things in which he has inspired and changed certain events to take place that took care of us. And now, we face similar big questions. We have similar stresses and similar worries. But the memories of what God has done gives us confidence of what God will do. The memories of what God has done gives us confidence of what God will do. I can consider how God has calmed so many storms already in my life. And that gives me hope. That, allow, that empowers me to go deeper and to trust him more with the storms that are yet to come. It's the heart of what faith is. And when we're asking, what does it look like to be faithful in a storm? It's, it's very important you have a clear idea of what faith is. Um, C.S. Lewis has a brilliant definition of faith. He says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted, despite your changing moods. I think it's a brilliant definition of faith. A lot of times people say like, faith is, is accepting something without reason or evidence or whatever. Um, and that, that's not true, right? I look at the disciples, like they had a lot of evidence to believe, to have faith in Jesus. They had a lot of evidence. 
And many great minds today, right, are, you know, brilliant thinkers and whatever. They have, they have all kinds of arguments and reasons about why they believe the gospel, right? Um, there is good reason to believe in Christianity. There's incredibly good reason. There's lots of evidence there, right? But the point is this, because this is what faith is. That even if our faith is extremely rational, and it's brilliant to the core, and it's arguments and historical facts and science and everything else, that we have this brilliant reason for why we believe the things that we do, there will be seasons in that rational faith where the emotions will take us on a roller coaster up and down and up and down where trusting God gets harder, when it feels harder, when it feels scarier, where we feel less confident, where we're more worried, where the ground beneath us looks less stable, when the storms and the waves look bigger than we can handle. And those scorpions look terrifying. There will be times we are not eager to trust God. And yet faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted despite your changing mood. One of the most common commands in the Old Testament is the command to remember. Remember. Especially, it's very popular in the prophets. If you go look through and you read through the prophets, you'll see it. It's like all over the place. I don't even have exact count, but it's very common. God says, remember the things that I've done for you. Remember the miracles. Remember, remember, remember. And this comes in a season when disciples, if you kind of remember, like the, the prophets is kind of, there's two main seasons in the prophets. There's the seasons where they're disobedient and the prophets are saying, stop being an idiot and start listening to God. And then there's this other season in which they're now realizing, oh, we've been idiots and not listening to God. And now we're in all kinds of persecution and hardships. And there's all kinds of trials and exiles and all things that are going wrong afterwards. Right, there's these kind of two seasons that take place. And in both seasons, whether you're not being smart and being disobedient or whether you're facing crisis, the rep repetitious command God keeps bringing up, remember. Remember the things that I've done. Remember who you were and where I have taken you. Remember the story that I have written before you. Remember who I am and remember my affections for you. Effectively, he's saying, remember what God has done, who God is, and how important you are to him. Because when you remember and you know who God is, there's no storm in the world that should shake you. You might not be in control, but remember the one who is. Remember the one who is. How do we be faithful in a storm? We do what the disciples didn't do that night. You remember who Jesus is. You remember who God is. You remember what he is capable of. You remember what he has done for you. You remember how he has worked in your life before. Remember the ways that he has worked in your life before. Remember why you have faith in him in the first place. Remember the rational reasons, whatever it is for you. Remember and be still. Uh, stillness, biblically speaking, it isn't doing nothing. It doesn't mean just do nothing, right? Uh, stillness is when you are diligent and wise with the things you can control, but you trust God with the rest. 
right? Uh, when Pharaoh is chasing the Israelites and God uh, parts the seas, you know what he tells them to do? Walk through it. Do you know how terrifying that would be? The waves are just parted and you've got to walk between this? You have no, I mean, the Israelites had a very simple understanding of who God was at that time. How do they know God's not going to sneeze? <laughs> and then, <laughs> they have no idea. It's scary. They still had to do something scary to get to the other side. And likewise, the disciples on the boat, do you think once Jesus woke up and said, be still, they said, oh, great, put their hands back and do nothing. And is the boat going to miraculously just going to finish sailing itself to the other side? I doubt it. I bet you they were just as diligent holding down the boat, getting the water out, doing whatever they need to do as God worked a miracle around them. Be diligent with the things you can control and trust God with the rest. Trust God with the things that you cannot control. Do you trust Jesus with the things you cannot control in your life? In your storms, remember why you trust him. Remember why you trust him. Be diligent and wise with the things you can control and trust God with the things that you cannot. Rest in confidence that he is in complete control. That there is no problem. There is no crisis. There is no tragedy or storm in your life he can't use. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your affection. And God, today I just ask that as we are here this morning, as we leave this week and whatever storms we are in or whatever storms are yet to come, God, that we would just, this week would be a week that we would be thoughtful about who you are in our lives, what you have already done in our lives, what miracles you've already worked in our lives. Father, thank you for your grace and your love that you continue to pour out in our hearts. God, help us trust you and help us to see how we need to trust you more and more in our lives. We pray these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.